thing again. We are continuing in our series on the book of Revelation. This is week nine. Can you believe it? Yeah, we are nine weeks in. We've got one more Sunday to go. Next Sunday, we'll wrap up by looking at Revelation chapter 20. Today, we're actually going to skip over chapter 20 because I wanted to hold off on that material till next week. And we're going to look at Revelation chapters 21 and 22. That's going to be our focus today, uh, where we see this Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven um, and landing upon the earth. And so we're going to get into all of what all that means and what the scripture tells us what it means. And so that's where we're going today on this Palm Sunday. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to read verses 9 through 14. I'll ask if you would to stand to your feet. I was watching the news this past week. Some of you may have heard the comments from the gay mayor who is running for the Democratic National Party uh, position or something. He's a guy up in Indiana. And his comment was to Mike Pence. I guess he's been having a little back and forth. Mike Pence had been following it that closely, so I don't know if he has been or not. But anyhow, his response to Mike Pence was, Mike Pence's problem is not with me. Mike Pence's problem is with my creator. What is his assumption? His assumption is that God has created me this way. And so that because God has created me this way, then of course it must be right. But the thing that he's forgetting in his theology is what the scripture tells us. And the scripture tells us that we all are born with a sinful nature. My natural desire is to lie. My natural desire is to steal. Just because that desire exists within me doesn't make it right. Really? So we stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from, not this is where truth comes from. So we look to God's word to be the final arbiter of our morality, to be the final arbiter of our truth. So we stand up each week to be reminded of that. Revelation chapter 21, let's begin reading at verse 9. We're going to see again this new Jerusalem, this new city descending out of heaven. Here we go. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You may be seated. Okay, so let's kind of walk into this a little bit. Let's find out what in the world uh, this city, this new city, what, it, what is it? What's it supposed to represent? Is it actually a literal city? Is it symbolic of something? So let's kind of look at what the text has to say. So let's start in verse 10. We're going to walk through this together. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what is it that, that John is seeing here? It says that he's seeing the holy city He's seeing Jerusalem. So it's this new city. The city had been destroyed. Uh, they had measured it off in Revelation chapter 11. That was a, pa that was a passage that we covered several weeks ago. And this, the old city was supposed to be destroyed, and it was in 70 AD. And so the city's been rebuilt now, or it's this new city. Um, even if you're a futurist and you think that the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, you, think that, you also think that it's going to be destroyed in Revelation chapter 11. So even though the temple is going to be rebuilt, the futurist would say it's still going to be destroyed. And so here comes this new Jerusalem. So whether you're a futurist or you're a preterist, kind of like me, that you would see, regardless, this is a new city for us, okay? So this new Jerusalem is descending down out of heaven, uh, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, 
And it says that on the 12 gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. So the 12 tribes of Israel, you got Dan, you got uh, Asher, you got Naphtali, you got uh, Benjamin, you got all these different tribes of Israel. And so each of those is inscribed on one of the 12 gates. So there's 12 gates around the city. And if you remember reading there, verse 13, it said there was three on the south side, three on the west side, three on the east side, three on the north side. And so on each of these gates was inscribed one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the names of the 12 tribes. Verse 14, it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So there's 12 foundation stones on which the city rests. And it says on those 12 foundation stones were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So we've got this city with 12 gates, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it, with 12 foundation stones. And on those 12 foundation stones are the names of the 12 apostles. You with me so far, okay? So this city's kind of, you're getting a sense of what it, how, it, how it's shaped up here. So verse 16, what we're going to find here in verse 16, which we didn't read, is the scope, the size of this city, okay? Verse 16 says that the city lies four square. Four square meaning that it's in the shape of a cube. So the length of the city, the breadth of the city, the height of the city, it all is the same measurement. So this thing is like one big giant cube. Um, and it says that the angel measured the city with his rod at 12,000 stadia, um, and so verse 17 says he also measured its walls, which came to 144 cubits. Now, I got a slide here for you that gives you a sense of the measurements of what all this is. A stadia is 607 feet. So if you multiply 607 feet times 12,000 stadia, right, because a stadia is 607 feet, you end up with 1,380 miles. So the city, this new city that John sees descending down out of heaven, the length of it is 1,380 miles long, almost the vertical length of the United States of America. So if you were up in Minnesota and you headed down to El Paso, it's almost as long as that. Okay, so this is a massive length-wise city. But remember, it's a cube. So not only is the length of the city 1,380 miles, but the breadth of the city is 1,380 miles and... The height of the city is 1,380 miles. And it said there in verse 17 that the city walls themselves, to support that kind of a height and that kind of a length and everything, were 200 or 144 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches. So multiply that out. 18 inches times 144 is 216, right? So the, the thickness of these city walls is 216 feet thick. That's a lot of building material. With me? Okay, so that's a really big city. Now, just to put this in perspective, um, again, the city, the length of the city, the, the 1,380, I mean, we're talking about the length from Minnesota down to El Paso or close to that. Um, and so this, but look at this picture of the earth with me for just a second. From the earth's crust to the earth's atmosphere is 62 miles. So apparently, not only is the length of this city, right, 1,380 miles, because it's four squares, it's also the height of the city. So it's saying that the height of the city walls is further than, is 1,300 miles further up into outer space than, uh, than, the, than the, from the Earth's crust up to the atmosphere. Only 62 miles, right, from the, from the crust to the atmosphere, uh, to outer space. And so we're talking about 1,380 miles way off, I mean way off, up into outer space. And so that should be the first clue to us that perhaps this is not a literal city. All right, just saying, but we'll get to that here in just a little bit. Verse 18, the city, the wall was built of jasper while everything in the city was pure gold. And it talks earlier about how the gold was translucent, how it was like you could see through it. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. There's your pearly gates, right? 
Um, Each of the gates was made out of a single pearl. Do you suppose that the gates of the city were also 1,380 miles high to reach to the top of the city walls? And it says that these pearls were made out of, or or that these gates were made out of a, there were pearls, made out of pearls, but it was made out of a single pearl. Did you follow that? Made out of a single pearl, which makes this pearl coming from one monster oyster, right? So, I mean, again, kind of makes us suspicious that maybe this is just supposed to be symbolic. Um, And again, it says that the streets of the city were of pure gold. There's our streets of gold, as some people would say, in heaven. Verse 23, and the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. Um, Its light comes from the glory of God giving light, and its lamp is the Lamb that is the Lord Jesus. So a few more items it goes on to talk about if you want to read it on your own. Revelation chapter 21 goes on to talk about this river of life that flows from the altar of God, flows out through the city and outside the city gates, and how there's this tree that grows inside the city. It's this tree of life. Um, And so let me just kind of sum up what we've talked about so far, what we've covered so far. We have this city that's built on the 12 foundations of the apostles of Jesus, Uh, that has as its gates the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It has gates that are made out of a single pearl. It has streets that are lined with gold. It has walls that are 1,380 miles long, breadth, and height. And so it's this gigantic, massive city. And at the center of the city is the Lord Jesus, and he's the sun. He's the light, uh, the lamp of the city. So there's no need for a sun source, a light source. The Lord Jesus is that light source. Okay, so what is it that John sees? Well, some folks say that John sees a new Jerusalem, a new city that is so gargantuan, and it needs to be so gargantuan because there's going to be so many Christians who are coming inside of the city that are going to live in this city for all of eternity. They anticipate that there will literally be this gigantic city with 1,380-mile-high walls that's going to come down and land on planet Earth, and that it's going to be here on planet Earth, and that's where all the Christians are going to live for the rest of eternity. And so that's one possibility, but again, I'm not so sure that that's what John sees. So what I'd like for us to do is take a little journey back. We're going to work our way back up to this here, but it's kind of a long journey. It's not a little journey. It's a long journey, but just hang with me. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. I want to share this with you. We'll start there. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. John writes, and again, this is all to figure out, well, what is this city that John sees? Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. It says that their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom and Egypt were two places that were known in antiquity and throughout the Bible as cities that were full of sin, cities that were known for their rebellious nature against God. And so the great city, it says, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. And then it goes on to identify what the city is. It says where their Lord was crucified. I mentioned that to you last week, and the city where Jesus was crucified was in Jerusalem, right? So the great city is, okay, all right, just making sure y'all follow me here. Now, what I want to show you is that John makes references like this to Jerusalem, um, calling it the great city, and a few other names like Sodom, like Egypt, and we'll see this in a couple of verses here that I want to share with you. Um, Look at uh, Revelation 16 and verse 19. Again, we read this last week. John writes, the great city that was split into three parts, there's the great city, Jerusalem, it was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the wrath or fury of his wrath. So on this occurrence, John adopts another name for the city of Jerusalem. He calls Jerusalem Babylon the great. Remember, Babylon, just like Sodom, just like Egypt, was known as a city for its many sins. It was known as a city for its rebellious nature against the will of God. It was a a city that tried to stand in the way of God's will. 
And so he's saying, hey, look, Jerusalem's become like Sodom. Jerusalem's become like Egypt. Jerusalem's become like Babylon, putting her right alongside those others. Um, Here's one more for you, Revelation 17 and verse 5. John has just been shown this woman who was drunk, and she's riding on a seven-headed beast. So this is this vision that he has. There's this woman riding around on this seven-headed beast, and it looks like a pretty gnarly animal that she's riding around on. Well, who is she? Uh, Verse 5 says that on her forehead, Revelation 17, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, and the name that was written on her forehead was Babylon the Great. So who who is Babylon the Great? Gave it away. Jerusalem, right? So this is so the woman is Jerusalem. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, just in case you may be wondering, well, Gordon, how do you are you 100% sure that that's who this woman is? Well, in case that's the question that you have, throughout this chapter 17, the angel tells John, hey, this is what the seven-headed beast represents. This is what the ten horns represent. And then says in verse 18, just in case you weren't sure, John, that this is what this was, let me go ahead and tell you what it is. Says The angel says, the woman that you saw is the great city. Identifier, right? Just told John, this is who this woman is. This is who this prostitute is, the mother of the prostitutes. Um, and so this, uh, i got a slide here for you. This kind of pulls them all together. So we got the Revelation 8, 11 and verse 8 passage where he identifies the great city as the place where their Lord was crucified and as Sodom and as Egypt. So calling Jerusalem by these names. And then we also have Revelation 16 and verse 19, which we looked at, which identifies the great city, Jerusalem, as Babylon the Great. And then we have Revelation 17. So we're just kind of progressing here through the text. Revelation 17, which uh, says that she's the mother of all prostitutes. So she's this woman who's drunk on the blood of the saints. And all of this, friends, is very commonplace in apocalyptic literature. The particular genre in which Revelation is written is highly, um, almost like fantasy uh, type of literature, uh, where it uses these grandiose images um, and to try and drive home a point. And so, again, like the Lord Jesus, for example, in the book of Revelation is never referred to as Jesus. He's always called the lamb, or he's called the groom, or he's called one like a son of man. John never uses proper names for places or individuals in the book of Revelation, with the exception of the seven churches to which this book has been written. Everything else is kind of uses these more symbolic references to them. And so this is in keeping with, uh, you know, the genre of of the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. Um, So two more insights for you, and then we're going to get back to our 1,380-mile-high city, okay? Revelation chapter 18, still moving through the book. Revelation 18, I told you it was more than a little journey. Revelation 18 and verse 2, John writes, And the angel talking to me called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The judgments have, been, have come. They've been issued against Jerusalem. We saw that last week, how the final judgment and the hailstones that came over the city walls, and they knew that it was, the, it was, the, it was their... Uh, capital punishment was, was underway and that God was, was ending his relationship with them. Um, and so we get to Revelation 18, and so the angel cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And who's Babylon the great? Jerusalem. Okay, well, again, one of these symbolic references to Jerusalem, one of these symbolic references throughout the book. And so he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Well, again, when a city is fallen, that means that the city walls have been breached. That means that those who, were the, who had the city under siege have now become the occupying force. They've moved inside the city. And this happened in 70 AD. And you can see on our slide, um, our, our title slide for the series, 
um, that that's a picture of the city of Jerusalem under siege by T General Titus um, and the Roman legions, and they've come up against the city in 70 AD, and for five months they laid siege to the city, and eventually the city fell, and that's exactly what happened, and that's what, is, that's what the angel's talking about here, that fallen, fallen is Jerusalem, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And then the verse goes on to say in verse 2 what's happened. Basically, the rest of chapter 18 is a report, if you would, of what's happened to the city, of some of the disaster that has taken place there. It's a lament almost, you might say, of how far Jerusalem has fallen. And so it says there in verse 2, it says that Jerusalem has become a dwelling place for demons. God's gone. He's left the temple. He's left the, uh, uh, the holy city. And so now the demons have entered in, and so it's become a dwelling place for demons. It says it's become a haunt for every unclean spirit. It's become a haunt for every unclean bird. You can imagine the vultures that would have been around that area. It's become a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, wild jackals, wild dogs, roaming through the city, uh, people passing here and there just to try and collect little bits and pieces of what might, they might find. Um, but bodies laying everywhere, corpses everywhere. That place was just a complete disaster. You, verse, I'm sorry, verse... 10, chapter 18, verse 10 says, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. So again, referring here to Jerusalem as Babylon, that city known for its many sins, that city known for its rebellious nature. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. Verse 16, alas, alas, for the great city that was at one time clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and with pearls. Verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So Jerusalem, this beautiful city, considered at one time in human history as one of the seven great wonders of the world. People would travel from all across that part of the world to vacation in Jerusalem. They wanted to come and see this tremendous, beautiful um, edifice that men's hands had built. And so that has this city that at one time was a holy city, the dwelling place for God, has now become a rebellious city likened unto Babylon, likened unto Sodom, a city much like the nation of Egypt that was known for her rebellious and sinful nature. So in response to all that, the scripture says, God has laid waste to the city. That is, God has taken, set her to the side. He has, she has fallen. Now, one more insight and we're going to uh, get to our, our big high walls here in just a second. Revelation chapter 19, so we're just progressing through here. Revelation chapter 19, one verse, verse 7. It says, some, angel, or some angels are singing, and one of the things that they say is, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Get this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, his new bride, has been made ready. And then in the verses that follow, Jesus steps out, he rides out on a white horse, and he's got a tattoo on his thigh. Yes, Jesus has a tattoo. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's got fire coming out of his eyeballs, and his tongue is like a double-edged sword, and he's striking down all anybody that would come. I mean, he's a pretty, he's a pretty uh, daunting groom, if you would, right? Come riding out on his white horse. And so he's arriving at the marriage supper in order to take his bride, okay? Let's just put all this together, okay? If the old bride has become a prostitute. If the old bride has become a city like Babylon, like Sodom, like Egypt, that is known for her rebellious nature, that has become known for her sin, known for her licentiousness, then that means that God needs a new bride, right? 
So he's out of covenant there. He's moved beyond that, and now he's looking for a new bride. And so that's what Revelation chapter 19 is celebrating. Hey, look, there's a marriage supper coming. So Jesus is about ready to go take a new bride, a new wife. Um, skip forward to Revelation, back to our walls now. Revelation 21, okay? We made the journey, circling back. Here we go. Revelation 21 and verse 2. This begins this segment about the new holy city, the, the new Jerusalem. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the text here indicates that the city that John sees descending, this gigantic city descending down to earth, is the new bride adorned for her husband. And then again in verse 9, repeats the same thing. Then came out one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you who. Right? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife. What you're about ready to see, John, the city descending down to earth, is the new bride. Now, is Jesus going to marry bricks? No. Jesus is not marrying bricks. Jesus is not marrying uh, building materials. See, the city is the new bride. This city is symbolic, representative of the gigantic Christian around the world through the course of the, cent- through the, course of the millennia moving forward. Um, and the, the size and the scope of the city is representative of the fact that there's going to be a lot of Christians that are going to come to faith in Christ. Not just a few, small city, but a really big city going to be huge. There's going to be lots of us that are going to come to faith in Christ, and that one day the Lord Jesus is going to have us at the wedding supper of the Lamb, that one day Jesus is going to invite us to the banquet table. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it anticipates this marriage between Christ and the church. Verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself. I mean, isn't that what a, what a bride and a groom do? The bride is presented to the groom in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, Jesus is planning on a marriage of sorts, and this marriage that's going to take place is going to be between himself and those who had put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's what this new Jerusalem is. It says it right there in the text. Let me show you, right? Verse 9, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then the city descends. Y'all okay with that? No? Maybe? If that's what I think, you can read somebody else and see what they have to say. But I mean, I'm just, I'm taking the text at its word, see what it says there. Um, So Jesus, again, is not marrying a building. He's marrying people. We are the bride. We are the new Jerusalem, Christians of the church age. All right, let's sum up what we've learned so far. God has divorced Israel The New Jerusalem with its 1,380-mile dimensions represent the bride, the church, Christians, who will one day attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great big giant banquet. Maybe heaven has streets of gold. Maybe it's got uh, pearly gates. But this text right here does not confirm that. So uh, we'll have to find another one that talks about the streets of gold and the pearly gates. Uh, But that's where those references come from, nevertheless. All right, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Y'all look thoroughly confused, or maybe you're worried about the weather. Or actually, I know what you're thinking about, but we won't give you an update, all right, because we want you to stay clued in. All right, so um, 
Anyhow, you say, what difference does all this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can answer that. The first difference that this makes to your life and mine, number one, is to make sure that we are ready to, uh, to attend that, I'm sorry, to make sure that we do attend that wedding banquet. The angel said to John, Revelation 19 and verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed indeed. Friends, to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to be able to make that wedding banquet and to be part of the bride that's going to marry the Lord Jesus, that's going to spend eternity in heaven with him forever, friends, that's a real blessing. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about this exact same scenario of this wedding supper. He talks about a king who has a son. His son's getting married. He sends out invitations all across the kingdom, and nobody wants to come. Everybody's got something going on. People are too busy. They've got all kinds of excuses. And so he says, well, hey, look, if none of those folks want to come, then I'm going to send my servants out to the streets and invite anybody who's willing to come. And so it's Jesus is making the point here that we've offered it to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people rejected what the Lord Jesus was offering them. And so then God says, look, I'm going to go beyond the Jewish people. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so God begins to go out and share the good news of the gospel with the Gentiles. And many of them come to this marriage supper. And then Jesus says of those who who rejected the invitation, Matthew 22 and verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, when I was eight years old, it became very clear to me that I had a sin problem that I could not fix. When I was eight years old, it became very clear to me that I needed my sins forgiven, and I recognized that Jesus was the way for that to happen. When I I was eight years old, it became clear to me that I was heading in that moment on a destiny toward hell. I was heading to a place where there was going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that I wanted to turn that around and that Jesus was the solution to my sin problem. And so at eight years of age, I knelt down at my bedside with my dad, and I asked Jesus into my heart. I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, all of my sins. And because of that prayer, at eight years of age, my destiny turned around from being a sinner headed toward hell to being somebody who was saved heading toward heaven. And so my sins were forgiven. They were washed away. And that's what Jesus did for me, friends. And that's what the Lord Jesus can do for you as well. If you're here today and you're unsure about whether or not where you will spend eternity, I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to wash your heart clean, and do what Jesus did for me, friends, he'll do it for you as well. Just something for you to think about. Second thing, you say, well, Gordon, I mean, what if I've already done that? What difference does any of this make to me? I mean, I've got, I've, I, I'm, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, so what, is, what does difference does this make to my life? Well, that's a great question, and that brings up my second and final point, and that is to make sure that we stay in this marriage. Make sure that we stay in this marriage, that we don't, uh, we don't negate our seat at the wedding table. Um, You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, there's not a single verse in the Bible that says that you can lose your salvation. Can't find it. Doesn't exist. However, there are verses in the Bible, and John Wesley points these out, and the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition points these out, that there are verses that suggest that there is a possibility that a person can lose their salvation, that a person who has entered into a relationship with Jesus can one day exit out of that relationship with Jesus, and it talks about how that is possible. So let's just look at a couple of those particular passages of Scripture. First one comes from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and here's what he says. He says, now I would remind you brothers. By brothers, he means Christians. So he's saying these are people who are believers that he's writing to, people who have entered into that relationship with Jesus. And he says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, 
So they're in this relationship with Jesus. And then he says, verse 2, by which you are being saved if, there's the key word, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So here's one of those occasions where John Wesley says, look, Paul says salvation is not a lock. He puts a condition on it. He says, if you hold fast. So it's not like salvation is a given, but he says that salvation will continue to be yours. You will retain it all the way through until you die, and you'll make heaven your home if you continue to meet this condition. And the condition is that you hold fast to the word that I preach. In other words, if you come to a point in your life where you walk away from belief in Jesus, where you walk away from trusting in his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, then John Wesley says, hey, look, the Bible seems to open the door, crack the door toward saying that a person can lose their salvation. Now, if you're a good Baptist, right, and you've been raised and you know the perseverance of the saints, or you're a good Calvinist, you know some good Reformed theology, you would know that that tradition would then come in behind and say, well, that person who has stopped believing, who has walked away from God, will one day make their way back to the cross, will one day make their way back into a relationship with Jesus. That's not the intent of my sermon today to argue with that. And so that is a possibility. There are scriptures certainly that would point toward that particular issue. But the point that John Wesley raises here is that there's, he cracks these scriptures, crack the door to say that it is possible that a person can lose, can walk away from their salvation, can walk away from a relationship with Jesus by that if statement. Here's another one for you, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. Just going to look at one more here. This is the author is writing to Hebrews, and the Hebrews are Jewish people. That's why they call them Hebrews, right? And so these Hebrews, these Jewish people have become Christians. These are Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus, right? They've, they've looked, to, looked to the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. They're no longer going down to the temple, no longer making sacrifices, no longer hoping that their good works will be enough to get them into heaven. But now they're looking toward the work that Jesus did on the cross to get them into heaven. And so he writes to them, Hebrews 3 and verse 6, he says, and we are God's house if, there's our word again, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is Jesus's death and resurrection. And then he warns them, verse 8, he says, do not harden your heart like they did out in the Sinai rebellion in the years when the Jewish people were wandering around out in the deserts. They hardened their heart toward God. He says, don't become one of those. And then he says, verse 14, um, Last verse here, he says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Friend, neither the writer of Hebrews nor Paul, neither the writer of Hebrews nor Paul says that salvation is won or lost on the basis of performance. We do not obtain salvation by being good, and we do not lose it by being bad. I want to be real clear about that. We do not obtain salvation by being good, and we do not lose it by being bad. You do not see that anywhere in any of these verses. However, these verses, and there are a handful of others like them, do suggest that it is possible to walk away from this marriage with Jesus, not on the basis of bad behavior, but on the basis of unbelief. If we continue to hold fast to the gospel, if we continue to hold on to and stand in what Paul says, I preach to you. Not about good behavior, not on the basis... We didn't come to Jesus because we were good enough. We came to Jesus because of what he did for us, and we accept that. And we don't stay in that relationship with Jesus because we're being good. We stay in that relationship because we continue to trust in what he did on the cross for our sins. 
We're not saved by faith and sustained by works. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. We'll die one day by faith. We'll enter into heaven by faith, not on the basis of our good works. Um, A relationship with Jesus, friends, starts by trusting in what he did on the cross. It's sustained by trusting in what he did on the cross. It's not sustained by our good behavior. And the great news is that our spot at the marriage supper of the Lamb is not based on performance. Isn't that wonderful? To know that you don't have to be good enough to get to the table, but that it's that you put your faith, you put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross, and that is what secures your spot at that table. Amen? All right, let me sum up. Jesus will someday return to gather his bride, the church, and the way that we get into this marriage by putting our faith and trust in the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, and the way that we stay in this marriage is by continuing to trust in the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. If there's some confusion in our heart and our mind about how this relationship with you is sustained, Lord, may we recognize that it's not because of what we do. But Lord, it is because we continue to trust in you and in the work you did on the cross. We are so thankful for that today. Lord, we are come together to gather around this table to remember your broken body and your shed blood. The reason why we are able to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God, we, we come with grateful hearts. We remember with grateful hearts the sacrifice that you made in this final week of your life here on this earth, how you gave your all because you loved us. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts, that you would increase in us a gratitude to you for what you've accomplished on our behalf. It's never what we do for us. It's what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we're so thankful for that. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.